Uh, We'll be in Luke 19 this morning, so if you want to turn there to Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And we're in uh, uh, just a mini-series, I guess, maybe six weeks or so, um, talking about uh, the gospel. I'm going to hand this down here to Maggie, if you can come grab this for me. I don't want to knock any of these off. If I can help that, thank you. Uh, We're in a mini-series, just I'm simply calling it the gospel. Uh, I didn't want to adorn it with all kinds of uh, taglines and subtitles and phrases and confuse anything. Because the basis of this series that I really want to drive home is this is the one thing that we cannot get wrong. This is the one thing that we cannot miss. This is the one thing that if our time, I should say, when our time comes to step into eternity, um, if we're wrong about this, uh, everything, nothing else matters in your life if you get this wrong. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. If you get this wrong. You will spend eternity, time without end, separated from Christ. And so this is of the utmost importance. And so I want to start, um, actually, with keep your place in Luke 19 with a reading from Ephesians chapter 2 that I read this morning in preparing my mind and heart for this text. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I want to read it really, really, really slowly, probably to a lot of folks in this place um, Maybe your story is similar to mine. Um, I, I started going to church when I was you know, pretty consistent, I guess about fifth grade or so. And uh, I was, every time the doors were open for youth, uh, I, was, I was waiting to race the youth pastor into the building. I was that kid. Um, there was one year actually we went to camp. And I, I don't, it was a middle school camp. We broke off in middle school and high school that year because there were so many in our group. And I was the only boy that went, and I ended up having to, to spend the, the week with my youth pastor. And, you know, a lot of guys would be like, oh my gosh, I don't have any buddies here. Well, my youth pastor's wife is an excellent baker, and so she sent just loads of cookies and the most amazing sweet tea ever. And so I barely knew this guy, and he and I are just grabbing this jug on our air mattress and taking a swig of sweet tea out of this gallon jug and just passing it back and forth. And from then on, I thought, man, I love church. This is good. Um, but I, I really, I grew up with uh, kind of the mentality of uh, don't smoke, don't drink, uh, drink, don't chew, and don't run with girls that do, that kind of thing, you know. And if I could just sort of keep my nose clean through uh, middle school, high school, and college, I, I was a good kid, you know. And I didn't realize, I gave my life to Christ, and I trusted in grace, but I didn't realize that I lived like a functional atheist for many years, many years. And I essentially got to college and began hearing deeper teaching, probably than I had just paid attention to, because I did have a wonderful youth pastor. And something clicked with me, and I realized I'm not saved by my goodness. And I truly trusted in Jesus, knowing that, you know, that the gospel is for all folks when I was 10 years old. But this grace explosion, or grace awakening, as Chuck Swindoll calls it, happened in my life in college, where I realized that going to church didn't cut it. That being a leader in my youth group didn't cut it. That uh, avoiding those girls, you know, that, that do all those things, that doesn't cut it. That I was going to have to be leaning and resting on something else in order to be acceptable to God. And so Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 really are close to my heart as what I would say is uh, a recovering Pharisee. You know, we talk about recovering alcoholics and recovering the, you know, addicts and this and that. Um, for a long time, I was trusting in my works. 
And so if you're here this morning and, uh, and you have a tendency to pull out your list of things and say, read them, you know, read them and weep here. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've served. Look at who I am. Look at who my dad and my granddad were. Listen to this text very closely. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For you are saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by faith. You're not saved by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. Okay? You're saved by grace through faith. And this is not from who? From us. From ourselves. It is God's what? Gift. The word grace means gift. They're synonymous. You're saved by a gift. You're saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Again, Paul says, not from works, so that no one can boast. So this morning, I want to talk to you from Luke 19 for a little bit about how the gospel is not the same thing as religion. The gospel is not the same thing as religion. And we're going to hit the purpose of the law after we look at the story of Zacchaeus. Last week we covered uh, pretty quickly Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So creation, you know, man, relationship, everything's good in the garden. Everything comes crashing down at the start of Genesis 3. God perfectly formed our world and perfectly set us up to relate to Him and to rule over this world. And the Bible says it was good, 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 good. You know, tov, 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 tov. It was all good. And at the end it was very good. Until Genesis 3. And Satan came in and lured us away from keeping, listen to this, the one rule that we were supposed to keep. That was all. I mean, we have more rules for the tribe after school program downstairs in our fellowship hall. Don't this, don't this, don't do this, do this, do this. You know, three or four or five of those. He just said, don't eat from one tree. I mean, just like leave it alone. Okay, leave it alone. And so even at that point, we had the ability to choose. One rule, we failed to keep it. And what happened? Everything in our world spiraled down into chaos. Sickness, sadness, darkness, pain, confusion came in. When you look around the landscape of our society and our culture today, confusion is rampant. Sexual confusion, gender confusion, work confusion, Family confusion. Who's in charge of the home? Who's leading? How should we do all these different things? Confusion is rampant. You say, where did all that confusion come from? Scripture tells us plainly. We are all suffering, as Lloyd-Jones says, Martin Lloyd-Jones, from one thing. One cause, and it is sin. And it manifests itself in a million different ways. But there's one sickness. And so lest we think, oh, I can get this thing right in my life. And once I conquer that... Everything will be fine. No. Not at all. The devil wants you to believe that. So that in works you focus on fixing this thing in your life. And you try to fix, 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 fix. And the whole time he's preparing another left hook to hit you out of nowhere. The big idea I tried to put forward last week is how the gospel is not just a New Testament concept. I didn't know that. Maybe until seminary. To my master studies. But it's really the big picture storyline of the whole Bible. How even from the beginning God's been telling his good news. That's what gospel means. The good news of the story that he came to set everything to rights. Sin crushed it, knocked it all down, fractured it and broke it. And he's coming to set everything back. In a nutshell we call this redemption. The story of the gospel. So we dialed into that question, is the gospel just for you 
You know, we talk about how good it is to be saved. Is the gospel just for you or is it about something much bigger than you? And we have a small, all of us, small part, but significant, a small but significant part to play in this grand story that God is telling about his world. We can't become so nearsighted and egocentric that we think the gospel's about us. Nowhere are we the heroes in the Bible. If you read the Bible and you say, hey, be like David, go get your five smooth stones and you knock down your giants, you're missing it completely. David was an Old Testament type, a foreshadowing of another champion who would stand in between a far greater enemy than a nine and a half foot giant and do battle and he shouldn't have won because he looked like he was weak, but he went in the strength of the Lord. It's not about you defeating your giants. It's about Jesus taking out the ultimate giant so you can be put back together in your relationship with God. So today I want to jump way ahead in the biblical storyline and go to the account of a wee little man named... I'm assuming you all know the song, right? Zacchaeus was a... Okay, VBS is coming back to you. VBS is coming back to you. There was a picture. We don't have the picture, do we? Do we have the picture? Okay. I had a picture of uh, a wee little man uh, who climbed a real sycamore tree in the city of Jericho uh, from, in last February. Uh, that wee little man would be myself. Uh, they found a, there was a sycamore tree in the city of Jericho. An interesting fact that I learned, sycamores grow nowhere in Israel except for in the city of Jericho. Fascinating detail that we don't, we don't catch, but that's just a little thing that the Holy Spirit dropped in there to verify the veracity, the truthfulness of God's Word. They only grow in that one place. And so I found this sycamore tree, and it was gated off. It wasn't, it wasn't the one Zacchaeus climbed, so don't get any big ideas. You know. But it, it was about seven or 800 years old, and actually the Romans went through and lopped all the trees down for their fires, so there was no trees for a period of time. And so I kind of staged this picture of myself climbing uh, the tree. It was just, I couldn't pass it up. It was just too fun. And so today we're going to look at this key question. Write this down if you're taking notes. Why is it that the gospel and not religion is the thing that changes people's lives? Got to get this right, church. Why is it that it's the gospel and not rule-keeping, law, or religion that changes people's lives. Religion simply will not work. It is an outward veneer. It simply will not create lasting life change or produce eternal life in a person. Even though on the outside you look shinier, you look prettier, everything is more intact, you look like a better version of you, Josh 2.0. But really inside, Jesus said about the Pharisees, you are dead. He said to the Pharisees, he called them whitewashed tombs. Deadness on the inside, looking beautiful and white on the exterior. So we're going to walk through his story, then we're going to zip back to the Old Testament law so we can get a feel for the purpose of it. Then we're going to come in at the end. I'm super excited about this sermon, so please, I know it's 1145, I get that. Please hang with me for this one this morning, okay? Let's read Luke 19, 1 through 10. Let's read that together. He, talking about Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Important detail. And he was rich, Luke tells us. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man. 
So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up, Jesus looked up and said to him, by name, don't miss this, he didn't say, hey, you. He said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. And all who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. That's my best Pharisee voice. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, that's the understatement of the year, I'll pay it back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has came to seek and to save the lost. So let's walk through this story momentarily here for a moment. By most standards, we live in a pretty small town, right? 8,000 people or so, pretty small town. Seven or eight years ago, uh, me and two friends of mine jumped in my little Civic that I'm still riding around, and we took that thing as far north almost as we could go, it felt like anyway, and uh, we parked it in Newark, New Jersey's airport, and we rode a bus across the state line into New York City, and we spent about 16 hours there. (laughs) We stayed one night, and I decided to come back. We ate all the food that we could possibly squeeze into that amount of time, Um, But we went all around that city uh, on some business, and it is one of the most amazing cities I've ever been to in my life. Everything else seems to pale in comparison to it. Uh, I mean, I just stood in awe. People hustled around me. Taxi cabs are honking at each other and swerving through lanes and everything. And I think, man, the five lane is looking so good right now to me. You know, people are shouting at each other. I watched two taxi cab drivers get out and get in a fight on the street. And we just stopped and watched. I mean, it was just awesome. It was amazing. It was a great, great, great place. Crazy place. Jericho is actually the New York City of that day. It was uh, an amazing city, really close to to NYC, extremely wealthy, great location for imports and exports and business. It had uh, great forests and palm groves, which actually perfumed the air for miles around. So it was the perfect place for Zacchaeus to settle in and make a killing. I mean, really make bank when it came to being a tax collector. Let me give you a little bit of background on the tax collectors. Ethan touched on it, but they had an interesting setup in their job. In his book, Gospel, J.D. Greer really goes into fascinating depth on the the background here. He says, when the Romans conquered a foreign land, they would immediately begin collecting taxes from the cities they had defeated in battle. But instead of trying to send a transplanted Roman official into a foreign place to go find out where the money is, one of the things they would do is hire out someone on the inside. Trying to find the money in the city was like finding a needle in a haystack. And so they would hire out a Jewish insider, somebody who was of Jewish descent, who was willing to basically turn their back on their people and work for the Romans. And so they were going to go around and collect taxes on behalf of the enemy. These folks were hirelings. They were sellouts. They were turncoats and traitors. And what the Romans would do is send a garrison of soldiers with them. So when Zacchaeus stuck out his hand and said, the tax is, you know, fill in the blank, Uh, Nobody's going to argue with him. Nobody's going to try to beat up this wee little man because there's a garrison of soldiers back here behind him protecting him and backing him. And as far as ethics were concerned, the Romans really didn't care how much extra Zacchaeus demanded. So I always used to tell children if the tax was, say, $1 in just today's thought for kids, if it was $1, Zacchaeus might say, the tax is $5, please. And where would he put the other $4, hypothetically? In his pocket. 
And he padded his pocket and became rich off of ripping off his own people. So how fun was Thanksgiving time for Zacchaeus? Not very, right? Because nobody wants to see Zacchaeus coming. It was so bad that the Jewish Mishnah, which is the record of oral debates between the rabbis around the year 200 and after, said that tax collectors were so vile, you should not even count them as people. They're so evil that you should not even count them as human beings and you're free to lie to them if you choose to do so. (laughs) So the rabbis were telling the people, you can just totally mislead them about how much money you have because they're not worth it. They're they're not even worth paying attention to. They were backstabbing, double-crossing turncoats, leeching money out of their grandmothers, if you want to put it that way. And Zacchaeus was the best among the best. He was a chief tax collector. So what does that mean? He had a bunch of guys that worked under him and he was probably getting a cut of the money that they were taking in. So this guy was one of the most corrupt, greedy, selfish individuals that you could find in the city of Jericho. And so in verse 1, Jesus comes passing through, creates a big stir throughout the city, and, and this wasn't like he just walks through and talks to a couple of fi- you know, folks and high-fives a few people, a couple of fist bumps. This was like the entire city came out to see this guy Jesus passing through. At this point in the gospel narratives, he completely has a rock star status, a celebrity status. If, if everybody had smartphones, they would pull them out and take pictures and try to get selfies when he's passing through and post it. You know, hey, look who I saw today, uh, that sort of thing. And so in verse 3 and 4, Zacchaeus hears he is coming and he runs off to see the parade. But when he gets there, what happens? He can't see. He can't get a look at this Jesus on account of the crowds. Now, at first we hear that and we go, oh, that's so terrible. This wee little man just can't see. Someone let him pass through. That's awful. Who would do that to that guy? However, this was very intentional. Here's why. Greer points this out in his book. If a short person, okay, let's just take me for example, okay? Uh, if, If I'm going to walk up to a crowd and you're taller than me and I say, hey, can I get through so I can get a look at the whatever? Is it going to hurt you for me to stand in front of you? No, not at all. You can see right over the top of my head. Okay? Same thing with my kids. I put them in front of me. I can see over top of them. This excluding of Zacchaeus was very intentional. Every time he tried to come through the crack, people would kind of slide over, throw an elbow, you know, something like that. Hip check him in the face, you know, something of that nature. And they were trying to keep this guy away. This was their chance to stick it to him. Well, in verse 5, we see that Zacchaeus was desperate. You don't read that in the text because we run past it too quickly. But verse 5 indicates the the desperation of Zacchaeus. I'm sorry, verse 4. Running ahead, he climbed up a tree because Jesus was coming that way. Listen, how many of you are going to leave out of here and run anywhere? Men. Anybody running? It's not dignified to run, right? We don't look like grown men. We look like little boys. Now, how many of you are going to run out here, turn left, and climb up the tree right here in the courtyard? (laughs) Nobody. No one's going to do that. Well, especially in ancient culture. Did somebody raise their hand? Okay, Ryan. Okay. (laughs) I thought it was Raymond for a second. No one's going to do that. I'm kidding, Raymond. I'm kidding. No one's going to do that. And especially in ancient culture, it was one of the most undignified things that a grown man could do. Remember the story of the prodigal son? What did the father do? He pulled up his outer garment and he ran to his son. One of the reasons Jesus put that in the story is because the man threw off all dignity and said, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. I'm going after my son. 
That right here is what we see. Jesus runs, or Zacchaeus runs ahead. He climbs up into a tree so he can get a good look at Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gets to the base of his tree. He stops and he looks up. Where's the rest of the parade looking? At Zacchaeus. No one looked at Zacchaeus. No one locked eyes with this guy. No one wanted him in the small group at church. Nobody invited him over for supper. Nobody even friended him on Facebook. Because they didn't have it. And Jesus looks up in the tree and says to him, not, hey guy, he says, Zacchaeus. The name nobody else wanted to say, Jesus calls. He says, come down. It's necessary for me to stay at your house. Everyone would not have been frustrated. They would have been repulsed. Jesus, how can you do that? How can you even consider something so heinous? And old Zacchaeus, imagine what he did. Use your biblical imagination. He probably almost fell out of the tree. He probably almost stumbled and caught himself on a branch. And when Jesus called his name, he scurries down to go have table fellowship with Jesus. You didn't do this. You didn't have table fellowship. You say, what what, what does all that mean? Who do you invite to your house? People you trust. People you love. People you respect. Who do you put food in front of at your table? Those ones that you have appreciation and love for. What did Jesus say? We're going to sit down and eat together. Me and you. The whole town couldn't believe it. Everyone grumbled and complained. Does he know about this guy? Does he know what he does for a living? Surely he wouldn't hang out with that guy. Of course he knew about Zacchaeus. He knew all about him. That's why he was doing it. That's one of the things I love about Jesus. Just when we think we have Jesus figured out, he says something or he does something that just knocks everything sideways. Now, stop the story. Here's the puzzling part. When Jesus went to stay with Zacchaeus, the scripture never records what Jesus did say or didn't say to Zacchaeus. There's no recording of that conversation that took place in that home. But you know what we do see? A dramatic change in a man's life. In verses 8 through 10, we see what happened to Zacchaeus. J.D. Greer says this, There was only one time in Levitical law where you were required to pay back somebody Four times the amount of damage that you caused and it was for stealing a cow. And Greer says that's probably because you bring them to the brink of utter financial ruin. And the law never talks about any requirement of giving away half of your wealth. Ever. And Zacchaeus did both. So the greediest guy in town in the course of one meal goes from greedy to generous. How does that happen? How did that change like that take place? And he exploded the boundaries of generosity. Something didn't just shift in his heart. Something didn't just kind of click. Something radically broke inside of Zacchaeus. He was changed, as Greer says, without a command. So here's my question. Hang with me. Here's my question. Zacchaeus grew up thoroughly Jewish. Culturally, he was thoroughly Jewish. He was acquainted with everything that he would have had to learn uh, as a Jewish kid growing up in that day. Yet, the Torah and the law, the law was not enough to change his life. Why? That's the question we have to get at. Don't read the story of Zacchaeus and just go, oh, Jesus loves rotten people. 
We're rotten people. I'm rotten people. Okay, I can tell you that without Christ. That's, that's, that's a, the big picture of the story. But don't miss this. Jesus didn't go into his house that we can tell and roll out a scroll and say, Now Zacchaeus, remember to keep this one, this one, this one, this one. 613 or whatever they, they came up with. Total laws. So what is the giving and the purpose of the law in the Old Testament? Let me give you a quick summary. Paul Zacchaeus a minute. Let me give you a quick summary. The book of Exodus tells of God's great rescue of Israel from Egypt. Awesome story. Awesome story. What does God do? Leads them out with amazing plagues. Uses a man that has a stuttering problem and sends him to the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man on the planet. And Moses was a fugitive out of that country. Moses, I don't want to go back there. What? You know what they're going to do to me? I can't even talk. God says, I don't need you to talk. Just go. So Moses leads them out, and then they get to this place called the what sea? Red Sea. And what happens at the Red Sea? God tells them, camp right there. You camp right there. He tells them where to put down their stakes. They camp, and they look up, and who's coming after them? The enemy. There's nowhere to go. They're hemmed in. They're either going to drown or they're going to be killed. There's nowhere to go, and God parts the waters and leads them through and crushes Egypt with his own water that he's spoken to be. Amazing story. But it's not just about Israel. It's a foreshadowing of how God rescues us from Satan and sin. All of us are in bondage to Satan and sin if we are not rescued out of it. We can't get out on our own. We're hemmed in as Israel was. But we need to get the timeline right of the Exodus rescue and the giving of the law. Because it tells us about the purpose of the law. Exodus 14, God delivers Israel. Go read it. Exodus 14, God delivers them. Three months later, three months in chapter 19, Israel comes to the Sinai wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. God tells him this, Israel, you are to be my holy nation. You are to be a kingdom of priests. Sounds like the language that Peter uses. Holy nation, royal priesthood, a people for my own possession. Peter's picking up on the same language. Exodus chapter 20, God gives ten commandments. This is not the whole law, but they encompass the foundation of the Old Testament law. Here's my point. Exodus 14, they're rescued. 19, they're at Sinai. 20, they're given the law. When were they given the law? Before the rescue or after? After. After. The law was given after Israel was delivered. The purpose of the law was never to deliver man from sin. Ever. The purpose of the law was to define and identify a people who keep this law, not to save themselves, but because they have been saved. And they belong to this God. And as they keep this law, they show the world around them, we belong to Him, and this is what it looks like when you do life His way. Boy, it would have been simpler in the garden just to stay away from that one tree, wouldn't it? But guess what? God keeps coming after us. And as time went on, what did Israel's leaders do? Their warped and twisted and pretzel, uh, twisted hearts turned the law into a spiritual barometer that if you keep these laws, guess what? You are a religiously devout human being. You are to be praised. You are to be celebrated. You are worthy. You are valuable. 
The law became about who? Not about God. It became about man. How far we keep it, what lengths we're willing to go, straining out gnats and those sorts of things, shows how serious we are about God. That's what they came to think. They miss the fact that the Old Testament repeats this Exodus story because it gloriously displays God's power and willingness to save. The law did not save Israel. It wasn't supposed to. The law is not a savior. The law points out our sin. The law cannot earn us anything. It's supposed to identify us as God's people. And so trying to keep the law became an effort to earn salvation, misusing and abusing the law and treating it like a works-based religion. And we make it about us. The gospel never makes us the point of the story. Let me ask you a question. If one of you ran into a burning house and saved a, a, a child, a little child, from the flames, the house is about to collapse in on the child, and you run in and you rescue them up, and you run out coughing, and you lay that child down, and you fall on the floor, and somebody puts a mask over your face, and they're giving you oxygen to save your life. Are they going to celebrate that child? They're going to celebrate you. They're going to celebrate you. They're glad for the child because the child was spared, but they're going to celebrate the Savior. What happened with Israel was they celebrated themselves, and they said, look what we are doing. The gospel presents God as the one who took the flames of God's wrath on himself in Christ. So it wasn't the law, it was love that changed Zacchaeus' life. Verse 9 in Luke 19, what does Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Why? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Today, salvation has come to you because that's why I came here was to seek and save the lost. Greer again says this, this experience changed Zacchaeus forever. Every other religion in the world would say to Zacchaeus, and don't miss this, even our churchianity, not Christianity, even our churchianity, if we count on that, would say this to Zacchaeus. If you change, you can find God. If you change, you can find acceptance and salvation. But the gospel is the opposite of religion. Jesus said, salvation has come to you. You didn't go out and find it. It found you. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? What did they do? They ran. And who went after them? God. And Zacchaeus was far from God. And who went after him? Church, who went after him? Jesus, this ought to stir our hearts that none of us went after him. All of us ran. All of us were far from God at some point. And were it not for Christ coming after you individually, you have no hope of being with Christ for all eternity. Religion will never remove your shame and guilt. It says, follow these rules and you'll be good enough. But Jesus said, You can't be good enough to keep them all. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to where you are. I'm going to keep all of them. Remember he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. And then he says, I'm going to trade places with you. I'm going to give you the A plus. And I'm going to take your F minus. I'm going to fail so that you can pass with flying colors. And you didn't earn it. I just traded places with you and gave it to you. That's the atonement. The gospel is not a 
religion. Don't miss this. It's a relationship. That's not a cliche, tongue-in-cheek, catchy phrase. The gospel is not what you do. It's what Jesus did. If you miss that, if you step into eternity, and God does ask that question, why should I let you into my heaven? And you say, oh, but look, Lord, here's all I did for you through 60 years of service in your church. He'll say, that's not going to cut it. I'm sorry. It's worse than that. He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. That should strike fear into your heart if you have not trusted in grace. That should wake you up this morning if you're falling asleep on the gospel. It should call you to say, I'm forsaking everything else in this world except for Jesus because He is the only way to salvation. He is salvation. That's what His name means. Religion will never remove your shame and guilt. I don't care how good you are. It'll clean you up. Put a pretty plastic veneer on you while everybody lauds you and praises you. And it will be for you an air-conditioned train ride to hell. It'll be comfortable. It'll be fun. It'll be good. But it will not make it into eternity. I close with this. Listen to this. Greer again says this. Why was Zacchaeus in that tree? Because he was despised. Jesus would end his ministry hung on a tree being despised. Jesus called Zacchaeus down from that place of shame and into a place of honor. And he took Zacchaeus' place on the tree. What a gospel right there. The gospel in a tree. That's what I should have titled the sermon. Jesus calls you down because he took your place on a tree 2,000 years ago. Please ask yourself, how can I get over that? How can anything else compare to that reality? How can anything else fill and absorb my time and my mind and my resources? How can anything else matter as much as that? God didn't leave you to your own devices. He came after you because you would not have gone to him. We love him because he first loved us. Gospel change is the spirit of God using the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts. Gospel change is the spirit of God using the story of God to make the beauty of God Come alive in our hearts. You are one day closer to eternity than you were yesterday. All of you. Myself. You are one day closer to where you will spend eternity. This life matters. It's significant. You bear the image of God. Think about that. One day closer to the great white throne judgment and religion will never write your name in the book of life. I know and trust that many of you 
are saved by grace. I know and trust that many of you are bearing fruit in keeping with your salvation. I'm not preaching as if there are 170 or whatever lost people in this place. Please don't misunderstand that. But you know what? If you are saved by the gospel today, if you are saved by grace today, your heart should be beaten like this. You should be so stinking excited right now that you're not worried about, is he talking to me? How dare he say that? That's terrible. You should be going, I'm with you what you're saying. And if you're lost, your heart ought to be beating like this, thinking I'm trusting in something else that's not going to work. I'm on a burning ship. I'm sinking. If there is nothing else that you hear me say today, understand this. Nothing, nothing will get you into the presence of God but the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, shed on your behalf to atone for your sin, yours, mine, not somebody out there, us. The gospel is not religion. It is a relationship. You possess it or you do not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love, love, love this story. I'm so thankful that your spirit breathed out these words so that Luke would record them for us to look at. Because I spent at least a decade of my life thinking that I was a, I was a good little fella. I was doing okay. I was better than the kid down the row. I wasn't doing certain things that we tend to put up on billboards as you ride down 40 and tell you not to do this and not to do that. I was okay. But in your grace, you show me that okay is not good enough. That I would bust hell wide open if I was just aiming at being okay. God, my prayer all morning has been that you would give testimony to the power of the Word of God. That no one would see or hear me, but see and hear uh, sandal feet walking through this place. The feet of Jesus walking amongst us. And feel the Spirit stirring so that someone in this place even says, I am lost and I have been waiting and waiting and waiting and holding out and today I'm not anymore. I'm coming home. May today be that day for someone that salvation comes to them. Because they're not going to it unless you draw them. You clearly said it in John. God, thank you for the privilege of standing here this morning with your word. For the help that your spirit gives in delivering it to the places in our lives where it needs to go. How you have challenged me, how you have exhorted me, how you have pushed me to ask some tough questions of my own life. How you have led me to celebrate grace. For it is by grace, through my faith in Jesus, that I'm saved. And it's not of me. It is your gift so that I cannot boast in anything but the cross. Let us look to Jesus. 
Let us celebrate people that sing and celebrate people that, that bring your word and celebrate those that, that serve in different capacities. But let all of those things point to Christ. And as we celebrate them, we are celebrating the ministry of the Son of God in our midst. Lord, thank you for this congregation this morning who has blessed me, encouraged me, strengthened me. And thank you for their grace and their goodness in taking their morning to listen. I don't treat that lightly. And you certainly do not. May your gospel do its work in your own way. In each life in this place, saved or unsaved this morning, your gospel is good for what ails us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and everyone said together, Amen. I want to invite you to respond this morning However God is leading you. I don't want to put any limits, parameters, boundaries on anything. If you need to pray, pray. If you need to kneel, kneel. If you need to raise your hands, please, in the freedom of the Spirit, feel led to respond however you need to. Be moved as God moves you. Move with the Spirit. Let's stand and sing our closing song. Meditate on these words as we sing.